Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of regional LGBTIQA plus living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and we respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This project has been made possible with the financial assistance of Melbourne Pride and with the support of the Mount Alexander LGBTIQA plus steering group the Mount Alexander Shire Council, and Main FM 94.9. My name's Colin Cameron. Uh, I'm 73 years old, and I've been living in Castlemaine for... I'll just have to check with my husband. How long have I been living in Castlemaine? 20 years. I've been living in Castlemaine for 20 years. I suppose probably the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life was when I met my husband. We did meet at a gay sauna in Melbourne that I used to work at. So it was a Sunday and I'd worked the previous night on the Saturday and I filled up the swimming pool that was downstairs and I left the hose in it. And then I went and cleaned up all the cubicles and did all those things that one does when one works at a gay sauna. I went home and I went to bed. I woke up at about midday or something and all of a sudden realised that I'd left the, the hose on in the swimming pool. And I assumed that the whole bottom floor of the Caulfield sauna would be flooded got in the car and tore to to Caulfield, let myself in and I had left the pool on but there was a hole in the floor and it all just ran down the hole so it wasn't an issue and I thought, oh, well, I may as well stay here now. And I saw this young man come up the stairs. He was very young. He was 23 or something and I was a very ancient man of 28 or 29. Apparently it turned out that he'd seen me the previous weekend this is the first time he'd ever been to the sauna by himself and he walked around the block about six times before he was going to come up the stairs because the person that he shared a house with said, well, you're depressed, go to the sauna. And so he did. And that was the story. That And that was on the 3rd of October, uh, 1977. Getting back to what was the my childhood like? It was... It was very unusual, really. My brother was two years older than me and my sister was a year younger than me, but we all lived in my grandmother's house. We didn't have um, huge volumes of money or anything like that. It was very, very working class. So we five, my mother and father and the three of us had the front bedroom, grandmother uh, and my grandfather had the second bedroom. One of my aunties um, had 
the third bedroom and then she got married and her husband and they had and her had the third bedroom uh, and my uncle who was sort of nowadays you'd say on the spectrum uh he had the fourth bedroom and it was just a single fronted house in richmond probably didn't mention my brother was gay and i was gay and my my mother's uncle was gay but he died before i was born and my mother's auntie was gay or lesbian um i mean i use gay as a generic term usually so they lived in a house in camberwell together because that's what old spinsters and old bachelors used to do frequently everybody in the world knew that Uncle Bunkle and Auntie Ethel were lesbian and gay man. He was friends with all the all of the art community and I mean my grandfather was an artist and he was an artist and everyone was an artist and and so they all sort of seemed to mix in broader circles uh, than perhaps than Stephen, my husband's family mixed in. And my mother was very aware of, well, homosexuality and her best friend that she met at, in, in, in grade one at state school was a lesbian. So then she had a friend named Molly and they were the lesbian couple that lived together. And when I used to always have boyfriends at school. In state school I'm talking about now, you know, year one and two and three and four. And whoever the, the, the boy was and what nationality, what religion they were, because I didn't have a religion, I used to go to their religious instructions. And so my mother used to have to write notes saying, Colin now wants to go to Catholic religious instructions or Colin now wants to go to Church of England religious instructions. I don't think I was allowed to ever go. I think that she wrote a note when I was, I don't know whether there was a boy named... Erkman or Herdman or something that I fancied at one stage and um, wasn't allowed to go to the Jewish one, I don't think. I was always a little bit know-all-y and I suppose I still am a little bit. I'd go over to the to, to Mrs Murphy's uh, grocery shop on the corner. It was actually owned by Mr Newman but it was called Mrs Murphy's because Mrs Murphy worked there. You buy some broken biscuits or whatever it was and then... Mum would say, oh, yes, a parcel would come from behind the counter and given to Mum. And I was very young and I said, what does, what's an oh, yes, or what's a something? And my mother was forced to tell me that oh, yes, was Modis, uh, which was, you know, female sanitary napkins. And I had to ask all the questions about it, obviously. And she told me everything. But then I got into much trouble the next day, uh, when I started telling all the kids at school, I think it was in the, the bubs or the <laughs> preps or whatever they called it those days. So that was, um, Another experience in my life that probably taught me something about concealing. I didn't think that anything was wrong with women having periods every 28 days or something and they had to hide it. It was a sort of a strangeness to me. I think the first person that I really um, 
that I knew that I was in love with was one of my brother's boyfriends. And actually I used to I used to take a lot of my brother's boyfriends because my brother my brother was not as um he was he was two years older than me and he he felt less comfortable with his sexuality than I did. So he must have been 19 and I was 17. He might have been 18 and I was 16. And we all went to Mildura for holidays because that's where my father came from. And um, he and I uh, made sure that we slept in his car out the back uh, of, of my auntie's place up Mildura you know she lived in a tin shed with a dirt floor and we sort of didn't want to be in there anyway and there was a dozen of us around so we slept out there and um that was my first love and yes I sort of I, I still I still remember that that is the first person that I was really important to me and the next person I suppose the only Probably the only other person I loved was um, was my husband. That was 1977 when we met. I, I mean, I was never never grossly uncomfortable with my sexual preference, but there was a, an experience when the the first time that I ever had sex with a with a with a, a female, and I, the, there was a couple of other boys living in the house with me I don't think they knew that I was gay at the time in fact I'm pretty sure they didn't and this girl next door came in and I I didn't do anything I couldn't do anything because I couldn't get an erection or anything like that and so I I was saying things oh no or you know I used and I said horrible things that um, I don't know, she was dirty or she was smelly or something like that to, to these boys to, to sort of justify my not being able to do it, you know, and, um, it was, it was really quite weird. Um, and the next weekend she came in and had a bath with me and I was able to do it. And then, uh, I got drunk at a, um, a, pub in uh, with all a lot of drag queens in it in in Cuba Street in Wellington at the time and then I went back and I climbed up her fire escape because all the New Zealand houses had those ladders all the way down uh, and I climbed up and climbed in her window and who was in there but the boyfriend and I being drunk told the boyfriend we slept together and then I, that was the end I saw of her because she moved out. He didn't move in, unfortunately, but still. Um, but that, the, but that's an indication of, of that that I was uncomfortable, even though I didn't think I was. The challenges uh, were much more significant than the cherished memories. Because, well, the note just says school, secondary school I'm talking about, because the whole thing in primary school was wonderful. 
And then I went to secondary school and my brother went to secondary school one year before me because I was sort of something to do with my birthday was on the 11th of May. So I started school when I was four and at the time I was in year 10, I was 14 and I left school in year 10 because that was as much as I could cope. He, uh, my brother left school in year 10 as well, uh, one year before me, because he was gay and the students knew he was gay. I don't know whether they knew he was gay because of me or whether they knew he was gay because of him, but the the kids in the science class in his grade, they made him... Just as the teacher was coming in, they made him stand up on the the desk, pull his trousers down and pretend to masturbate. And that was a bit much for him. Uh, so he, at, at that stage, you had to go to a school near where you live. And he went to Mildura because the kids, you know, I mean, how, how does a... 14-year-old or a 15-year-old, he was probably 15 by that stage, how does a 15-year-old finish his year 10 in the same school that the kids have made him stand up and masturbate in front of the teachers? It just doesn't happen. So he went up there, which was probably the end of him really because he, you know, anyway, that's another story. Me, I was in... It was an all-boys school and um, and I only ever spent three and a tiny bit years in there. And the reason was is because, you know, we were all 13 and 14-year-old boys and some of the one, the older ones were 15. Um, and there's not many boys at 14 or 15 that don't want their dick sucked. Absolutely, categorically true. And I was quite you know, willing to do these sorts of things um, and enjoyed it. But in year 10, the the people stopped liking me very much. They, In fact, they didn't stop liking me. They disliked me immensely because uh, I think the, the, the boy that was second uh, didn't like me because I was first and he was second. I don't, I don't know the story. They used to do the most horrible, horrible things to me Actually, even worse than what they did to my brother. They used to, they used to do things like shit in the toilet and then turn me upside down because I was a very small person and rub my head in it. And then they put me in a 44 gallon drum, which were the rubbish bins and they poked me in it and I couldn't get out because I couldn't reach the top to get out. Um, and then. They'd leave me there and then the English teacher who I had after lunch used to have to come and get me out. And then fortunately he was a very sensitive and intelligent and I suspect gay man that used to wash my hair and they were the challenges. Actually, there was more of a challenge than that really because my mother knew what happened and why and she came down to the school and I said, well, I can't stay at the school, obviously. And so the, the headmaster said, oh, well, you know, you're academically quite smart. You've got to go to another school. And the only other school I could go to was uh, Melbourne High and my catchment in Richmond and where I lived. And um, to get there, I'd never done a language because you had to do a language in Melbourne High and you couldn't, you didn't do it in a, 
a, a, a technical school where you learnt carpentry and sheet metal and engineering and motor mechanics. So I had to go back a year and then I had to get a new uniform. My, my mother was the sole money earner in the, in the, in the family. And so we couldn't afford a new uniform. We couldn't afford new books. We couldn't afford for me to go back a year. We couldn't afford all the language books and everything like that because they were all expensive. They were expensive for us anyway. So I had to go to another technical school. And I had a an auntie, uh, the auntie who used to live with us in Richmond after she had married and had six kids. They they lived at, at a house in Eltham, a weekend house that my grandfather had built years and years and years before. And so I had an Eltham address, which meant I could go to What's Own Your Tech. Well, to go to What's Own Your Tech, I had to walk from the bottom of Richmond Hill, which is now quite posh, up to the West Richmond Station, and then I had to catch a train to What's Own You to go to What's Own Your Tech. The, the train had to go through Clifton Hill, talking about challenges and the stage that it went from Clifton Hill and it crossed a very uh, a high bridge over a creek and then it went up to Watsonia um, I remember the stations from from Clifton Hill to Watsonia very well and I stayed there well I'll tell you why I didn't stay there any longer because they were red trains, the old red rattlers, and you used to leave the door open in the in the in the summer. Um, and going up there, coming back actually, I just about jumped out the train after over the bridge, which I didn't do anyway. I had to leave that school because I didn't, I knew, I knew that I didn't want to kill myself. I knew there was nothing. Actually, the other thing I knew was that all of those boys whose dicks I'd sucked, they wanted me to suck their dicks and then they bashed me up for it, which to me meant that there's something wrong with them, not me. It was obviously very traumatic, and actually, no, I'm I'm going I'm going to another story now, because I'm 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 wiping my eyes, and I'm telling you about a research project that I did for Melbourne University. I was already a psych nurse, uh, and I was I was on the board of management of the Victorian AIDS Council and the Gay Men's Health Centre. I was, as I say, I was a psych nurse, but because of the, uh, in my belief, because of the fact that I was on the Gay Men's Health Centre and the, the VAC, I got a job for three years doing a research project for Melbourne University. It was entitled uh, The Emotional and Psychological Aspects of AIDS and HIV. Uh, for three years, I followed, it was supposed to be a 100 gay men with a negative and a hundred gay men that were positive, we ended up with, I don't know, 30 of each or something like that. And most of the positive people were from the gay men's health centre. 
Well, it was unsuccessful because there were just weren't enough numbers. There were a couple of little articles in, you know, the uh, Australian Journal of Psychiatry or whatever they were. The number of gay men, and it was, it was only gay men that I was talking to and we were talking about that had either contemplated or attempted suicide was massive uh, and i can't remember the number but it was hugely huge it was it was it was up in the 40s somewhere i'm sure and so i was one of them obviously i never i never i knew that i would never do it but just the impulse The, the issues used to be so <laughs> difficult for a lot of gay people. I, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming lesbians. I'm not, I don't know because I, I haven't huge amounts of experience, but, um, but for gay men in particular, um, the, the issue of being accepted as a normal man uh, as opposed to um, and my brother as I've mentioned earlier on he had much more difficulty uh, coming to terms with his sexuality than I did uh, maybe because I was two years younger I, I don't know or maybe because of just the way the, the people that I mixed with as compared to the people that he mixed with. But he had real difficulty uh, having sex with men. Well, he didn't have difficulty having sex with men. He used to love having sex with men, but he had difficulty initiating or instigating sex with men than I did. The consequences of that were that he had to normally uh, be quite drunk he couldn't really have sex with with men until they were all drunk and so they used to go fishing at Eildon and they'd all uh, get drunk and have sex and then they'd all come back and they'd do whatever they did and then they wouldn't have sex the problem with that is sex is a very enjoyable thing Mostly, usually, and I always used to think so. So therefore, he used to be drunk an awful lot. And therefore, he ended up with pancreatitis. And pancreatitis causes a lot of pain. And therefore, he became iatriogenically, which means acquired in the hospital, uh, a, a, a morphine sulfate addict. And he ended up in Wentworth, he ended up up there in a housing commission house with my mother and he he used to go into Mildura Base Hospital uh, and he used to come back with, you know, lots of packs of morphine sulfate, continuous MS Contin and, uh, and things like that. Uh, and then there were a, a couple of young women on the bus that he used to come back with and 
he could never afford marijuana, but he used to like marijuana, and so they would swap their marijuana for his MS Cotton, and so then they ended up living with my very old mother at that stage, and in the end, she came down to Castlemaine to the beautiful Ellery House, and he stayed up there with with the young women that he used to swap the drugs with, uh, and he ended up aspirating his vomit uh, from the overdose of MS Contin plus marijuana and a couple of days later in the in the um, Mildura Base Hospital he died. I had to take mum up to the funeral at, you know, Merbeing Cemetery or wherever it was and it was sort of rather horrible. But we're on to the good bits now and that was the last, the last of the bad bits. And the good bits are... Um, Stephen and I for 44 years. The good bits are the work I did in, in Fitzroy and Richmond and Collingwood with homeless people with drug addictions and things like that. And the other good bits are when I moved to Castle May. And it has been so wonderful to, to be up here. Uh, I mean, we had, we had lots and lots of lesbian friends and gay friends in Melbourne. Uh, we didn't know a single trans person in, in, in Melbourne at all. But we, when we moved up here, we met all of these wonderful people. <laughs> there's a group of gay men called the Alluvians and there's 99 or uh, 100 names on the emailing list of that. Uh, and then there's the, there's... The beautiful Scott devised a, well, he didn't devise, but he was coerced into creating a Castlemaine Pride Choir, which is where we met lots of other amazingly beautiful people, including trans men and trans women. And it's lovely. I mean, there's, there's nice things about Castlemaine. I don't know very many provincial towns the size of Castlemaine that have or had an LGBTIQA plus um, activities officer. Uh, and so it's just it's just a wonderful place to live. I'm not going to mention all of our gay friends in Castlemaine by name because that would be a bit rude, but <laughs> there, there, are, there are hundreds of them. I, I think that might be the end of the story. And I apologise for... I apologise for some of the tears but not all of them because a lot of them are what happens to gay men uh, that, that, that were at one stage of their life alone. podcast has been produced by Shireen Clow, editing and original music by Amy Chapman, interviews conducted by Shireen Clow and Amalia O'Hara. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, 
please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline 13 11 14 Kids Helpline 1800 555 1800.